Hello, everybody. This is Dyer from Northwest Nerd coming at you with a bonus episode while Nick and I are in between seasons two and three. And for this bonus episode, I'm presenting to you four features from season two back to back. And in one way or another, they all have something in common. These are the Seattle features. At least they have some connection to Seattle. Starting with an iconic and educational video game that pretty much any student from the 80s and 90s grew up with. This feature was so popular with our listeners, someone even came to our Emerald City Comic Con after party cosplaying as this feature. First up, let's hit the trail. grew up playing Oregon Trail, and I was obsessed with Oregon Trail, and school was the only place I could play it. This is Matisse Fletcher. She loves Oregon Trail, the video game. And so I'd go to school, and I would sit before school, and I would sit after school, and I would play, I think, the 1993. It was in the it was a 90s version, because it was a color version. And I would play it for hours and hours. You were just excited about shooting, like, bison and dysentery. fighting off. And, like, dysentery, yeah. You're excited about dysentery in Oregon Trail. <laughs> So yeah, a little bit obsessed with Oregon Trail. It's from a time when teachers in the 80s and 90s would sit students down in front of a computer and they would play this 8-bit style game with 8-bit music and bleeps. In Oregon Trail, you have a party, you give them names, you buy supplies before the trip, and you hunt while on the trail, cross rivers. Sometimes there's water, sometimes there's not, sometimes people get injured or your oxen are stolen, and you mimic the actual experience of those who took the Oregon Trail in the 1800s. I loved watching the wagon float across the river and either sink and I'd be upset and I'd have to restart or make it across. And I loved hunting and gathering and bringing back food. And I didn't care about the family. I didn't care. I wanted to go hunt and I wanted to like go trade. That was my favorite part. And I found it irritating that I had to worry about little Timmy when he, when he got a snake bite. Whereas when I played it yesterday, I was very concerned because both Johnny and Timmy got snake bites. It was very stressful. Now, Matisse is long out of school, but lucky for her, she works at Living Computers, which is a museum of sorts in Seattle. They have an impressive range of old systems that people can actually use, including this game. It's like a perk of the job. You can play the original 1971 text base on our Xerox Sigma 9, or you can play the 1981 version on the Apple II. Oregon Trail doesn't exist anymore. At least, it doesn't exist in the way that Matisse is talking about. But its influence remains, whether it's in our pop culture consciousness or even in the computers that we use today. You can even find t-shirts that have wagons on them and reference a death by dysentery. So a lot of people experienced Oregon Trail from its 1980s and 90s versions, but the roots of this game actually happened a decade before all that. It was an experimental idea that started with this guy. Don Rawich, and I am a developer of educational technology products for the K-12 school market. In 1971, Don was studying to be a teacher. He was a student teacher at the time, and he was assigned to teach some middle schoolers a unit on the westward movement. It's when hundreds of thousands of people made this trip from the eastern part of the United States to the western territories. They went 
via the Oregon Trail, which wasn't actually a single trail. It was more of a series of routes and landmarks that led you to the Northwest and to California. I knew that having kids read about this in textbooks was not going to cut it. Uh, and I began to think about, wouldn't the Oregon Trail trip uh, back in the 1800s lend itself to a board game kind of format? He starts to lay this out on the floor of his apartment. And that's where his two college roommates, Bill Heinemann and Paul Dillenberger, found him. I explained what I was doing, and they said it's a great idea to teach using a game, but we, we ought to put this game on the computer. We were fortunate enough that the Minneapolis public schools had computing capabilities for the schools, um, although they would seem quite primitive to people today. Primitive, but the game they eventually came up with was essentially the game that students would play even years later. You would press a number for certain options or respond yes or no, and the game would progress. But the first version of the game worked on a teletype machine. That machine had a little phone connected to it. And you plug that into a box called a coupler. And when the computer started sending its digital signals across that connection, the teletype would, uh, would print out what the computer sent and would allow you to type something in to send to the computer. Back then, you would actually hear the computer communicate with the teletype over this phone line. Kind of sounded like a fax machine. And the computer was actually in a building far, far away from where you were actually typing. And I would credit um, Bill and Paul to having worked out the kind of the flow of the game. Don did something different. It could be said that what he did next is what adds all the character to Oregon Trail. And so I went to the library and did research, and I found that there were printed versions of actual diaries that people kept as they made that trail. What, what kinds of things happened? How often did they happen? And I went back into the code for the Oregon Trail program and adjusted the probabilities so that things happened at about the same probability as they seem to happen from the settlers' uh, accounts. That's why Jimmy breaks his leg or why it rains certain times. And uh, we were able to play Oregon Trail starting on December 3rd, 1971, for about a week. The, the kids, you could see that they were talking about this this migration, uh, it meant something to them. And the, the computer put them right in the middle of the trip in a covered wagon, which was a different way of learning than they had ever experienced. And then, well, the course ended. And so did Oregon Trail. You see, Don and his two friends, they were not employees of the school district. So Oregon Trail was erased from the district computer. But before that could happen, and so we, uh, we printed out the code uh, on, on the roll of paper and uh, hung on to it for a couple of years. The code of that time was BASIC. Stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. For a few years, Oregon Trail didn't exist anywhere except on that scroll of paper that Don carried around with him. 1974 rolls along. Don's out of college and he goes to work for a place called Minnesota Education Computing Consortium. It's referred to as MEC. The mission there was to set up a large computer system for the Twin Cities that would be accessed by schools across the state via that telephone method that I mentioned before. He gets to work on that, and he noticed that there was some space for a library of applications, stuff that teachers would use. So I brought a teletype to the house I was living in, and over a weekend, I typed in 800 lines of code from the scroll 
so that it could now be stored on that, uh, that Minnesota computing system. It was available to Minnesota schools from 1974 to 1980. Even at this level, this is pretty revolutionary. That was a game that was one of the first video game-based tools that were being used in elementary schools. And how many games echo that strategy and like world building? Because granted, all of it started with like D&D and whatever preceded D&D. But Oregon Trail was one of the first that had you um, build inventories on a computer. If you trade with this person at this, you know, at Fort Laramie, down the way, your wagon might sink and you're going to have to figure out a way to trade again. And it was one of those strategy games. And that to me was just so fascinating because so many games now, like pick any that you can imagine playing on any console or PC gaming, you have inventories and you have to strategize around your inventory. So that was, I think that was just cool. And this was all before a significant shift happened in computing and education. In the early 1980s, people started making these computers that would actually fit on your desktop. They noticed this at Mech and figured schools would be interested. The Apple II being uh, one of the early models. Yeah, that Apple computer. Mech came up with some specifications for a computer that would work in schools, and they put it out to bid. Uh, Apple Computer's bid was the low bid that met all of the criteria, and so uh, Mech created a contract with Apple that was open to Minnesota schools so that they could purchase apples. Mech also had some influence on what they came with, which were these square floppy disks. One of those disks had Oregon Trail printed on it. People in, in education across the country looked around and said, you know, there's only one state that's got some kind of statewide coordination for computing, and that's Minnesota. And Minnesota has chosen Apple, so maybe we should use Apple. And the other thing was that Mech set about the task of converting the applications that had been running on the large computer system, uh, converting that to code that could run on the Apple II computer. And when Oregon Trail went from the mainframe to the desktop, it also got an upgrade. It looked a lot like what generations of students now remember. There were pictures, for one. It had those little 8-bit noises on it. It was a little bit more engaging. We always felt that we helped to push Apple's popularity because they were they became the leaders in the education market and in return uh, things like the Oregon Trail got a lot more visibility than just in one state. Really the relationship between the two of them was so momentous and so fortuitous I feel like if there hadn't been that partnership there wouldn't have been as much presence of either in schools. You could probably say there were possibly uh, four generations of the Oregon Trail product. One was the, the one done on the large mainframes. And then when uh, the personal computers came out in around uh, 1979, 1980, for Apple's, uh, then the, the third generation would be the versions of the Oregon Trail uh, that Mech made available for other personal computer models like IBM and Atari. Maybe the fourth generation would be um, an expanded version of Oregon Trail that came from Mech, but um, used the innovative method um, filming staff members dressed up as pioneers you actually could listen to a human being speak via video that would come up on the screen. It's such a common denominator with a lot of people because we all had it in elementary school. And so it's something that I have found is 
a common enough thread that if I'm meeting new people, particularly in the context of living computers, that is a game I know I can bring up and that we can have that in common and that we can talk about. It's been nearly 50 years since Oregon Trail was first put on a computer mainframe. Dawn's involvement with it ended a long time ago. But Oregon Trail has never really been quite finished with Dawn. One, one quick story. I was in Boston and uh, we went to a, um, a booth in a shopping center where you could get a ticket to, to take a, a, like a bus tour around Boston. And uh, we got up to the ticket taker who was a, a woman probably in her 20s. And I just happened to mention why I, I was in Boston. And I, one of the, my purposes there was to talk to a group about Oregon Trail. And she let out this, this howling scream of excitement uh, that she was talking to somebody who had uh, helped to invent her favorite game. Last couple of years, there's also been a Reddit AMA. Just last year, the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco did a whole special retrospective on Oregon Trail. It drew a few hundred people. And it's the only educational video game in the strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. And Dawn continues to go around talking all things Oregon Trail and answering fan questions. Like, how much money he and his friends made off of this game? Uh, the three of us inventors did not make any money. The only way that Oregon Trail could have gotten into the market was through uh, what turned out to be an organization that I worked for. And as a matter of fact, the, the versions that most people remember that became popular were the ones to develop for personal computers. So that's all to say that uh, although there's no fortune, there's been plenty of fame. Another question, if he could make Oregon Trail today, would he do anything different or would there be other details that he would include? The uh, Native American perspective, I, th I think, is important because uh, so much of uh, messages that have come from our culture over the past decades have, have tended to um, portray the, the travel west as a situation where uh, uh, white pioneers traveled in a covered wagon and were attacked by tribes of Indians all the time. And it, it sets up a good guy, bad guy kind of scenario, which is unfair. Yeah, it turns out that tribes weren't often looking for a fight. In fact, according to many of those diaries that Don talked about, indigenous peoples were quite helpful. Help to um, understand how to find food and and uh, how to stay away from things that that were not uh, healthy for you. I think when the settlement first began, the Native American people thought giving a little help would be fine. Uh, but then, of course, the the immigration turned into a uh, a rushing river, and uh, they found that they were being overwhelmed in in their own territories. But also there is the impact. In, in some cases, uh, the white settlers uh, were carrying diseases their bodies had never experienced. Uh, and so they could be adversely affected just by coming into contact. It's a, it's a complicated story. And sometimes I think it's been oversimplified. I definitely believe that there, there are many ways that you can use games um, to teach people. And so what, what better way to make that new information meaningful and memorable uh, than to make it part of a, of a game experience, which is something that, that tends to, uh, to stick with you.
The Seattle freeze is a pretty common stereotype you run into around Seattle. But I got to say, I've also lived in Portland and other parts of the Northwest. It's pretty universal in these parts. Historian Felix Bennell opens this topic up for us a little bit and shows us that there's a lot more history to this stereotype than you may realize. I don't believe the Seattle freeze exists at all because I was born and raised here and I have great friends here. I've also lived in other parts of the country and I have great friends in other parts of the country. I think somebody who says the Seattle freeze is real just wants an excuse not to make an effort. You know what I mean? Like you want an excuse to go, I don't have to do that because of the Seattle freeze. The freeze really was for me, at least, and what I've been trying to, to tell other people is that they don't want to go the next step. So it's like you hang out with someone, you have a great night, you meet some of their friends, and you start chatting, total lots in common, and then that's it. You get the one night with people here, and that's all. There's this notion, a very controversial notion, it turns out, that for a range of reasons, it is more difficult to make friends in Seattle than most any other city. Locals are just cold and unwilling to invite new people into the crowd. Some blame it on the weather. Others say that so many people in Seattle are too career-oriented and don't have time for socializing. You know, there's lots of theories, but there's no real... I haven't seen any real hard evidence for what that really stems from. I mean, people talk about, oh, it's it's sort of the, uh, the um, Scandinavian way, kind of people sort of cold and aloof. And, you know, there's Scandinavians here, but not... Nowadays, it's, you know, it's a tiny percentage of the population. That's writer and historian Felix Benell. More from him in a little bit. But first, we enter into the ring for a fight between proponents of the Seattle freeze and its deniers. Or between propagandists and people who just love their city. It really does depend on your perspective. There's this angle that sort of branched off the Seattle freeze that I think kind of explains what this idea is. It's this idea of the Seattle maybe. Now, this is when somebody positively says they will hang out with you in front of your face, but they don't really intend to. I think of the Seattle maybe as the freeze, right? So that kind of that kind of matches what I'm thinking about is that they're not going to call you back. Great night. Lots of pictures together. Everyone's then maybe you're a Facebook friend and you'll never see them again. This is my friend Gabe Carbajal. I've been in Seattle for almost 15 years. I moved up right after college from Southern California. Checked out San Diego, LA, San Francisco. Didn't like it. People are just not nice, right? Actually, I come to visit. Everywhere I went, people just chat you up. Like, they'll just talk to you as if you've known each other forever. And I just thought that was so incredible. What a different culture. So I'm thinking, what is everyone talking about? This weird freezing. I have never experienced that. Now, of course, there's a but. But um, what I noticed was that the freeze really was, for me at least, and what I've been trying to to tell other people is that they don't want to go the next step. So it's like you hang out with someone, you have a great night, you meet some of their friends, and you start chatting, and then that's it. Um, And that's what it always felt like. Like, sorry, like we're fooled up. You're a great guy. You're a nice person. We had a great night. But we're all done with friends. And it took me, I would have to say, about a year and a half of living here before I could call someone an actual friend. Like, I could call someone on the phone and talk. That's a long time. But for every Gabe that is out there arguing that the Seattle freeze has given them frostbite, there is someone like my friend Candy Harper. 
the uh, the Seattle freeze is a made up phrase by people who are extremely elite and feel like their feelings have been hurt because they're not kind people. I should probably note Candy is from the Seattle area. Now she's lived elsewhere, but she would qualify as the local in this whole Seattle freeze idea. Which makes sense because whenever I bring this up with Candy, she argues back. Most people are nice. To be kind, that is an extension of oneself. That means, um, hey, I'm going out of town. Oh, do you want me to take your recycling to the curb for you? You want me to watch your dog? Um, That's, uh, oh, I'm going to watch this TV show. Do you want to come over to my house? Those are kind gestures. Nice is, we should get drinks sometime. And then, so wait a minute. No, 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 no. Call. So let's go through what we just talked about here because you just mentioned, let's watch a TV show come over to my house. That's been our Game of Thrones nights. Yes. The other example, however, hey, we all need to go out for drinks sometime, yeah. which is what I say to you, but then the person never does it, <laughs> which is what you never do. Okay. Yeah. That was probably a bad example. Still, Candy puts it on the newcomer. It's not them, it's you. <laughs> I Because I was born and raised here, I, I'm offended when people say the Seattle freeze is, is a real thing. Because then, then you're offending me. I've never had problems making friends. It's not them. It's legitimately you. You are the common denominator in all of those experiences. And so, right, I'm assuming people would probably say, yeah, like, well, maybe it's just you, but it's hard for a lot of people. So I don't think it's just me or, um, you know, and I run in a bunch of different types of circles, too. And not even that, all of them are difficult. And the cycle continues. They just sort of talked about that way that Seattle people don't really invite you into their lives and they're a little wary. And I'm totally that way. I embody the Seattle freeze. Back to Felix Benell, local writer and historian. I mean, I, I remember in probably about 1997 or 98, I was working for King County Park System, and I met a woman who had moved up here from Portland. And she said, she described the Seattle freeze to me, but not in those words. She said, yeah, at Seattle, you, know, you come to, I met people at parties and they say, oh, there's this really great bar. It's, you know, it's really cool. It's got neat atmosphere. The drinks are cheap and everything. Here, I'll give you the address. <laughs> like the, in other places, people wanted to take you and show you things themselves. In Seattle, they just wanted to give you the address and tell you where it was. And that for me, it's like, yeah, uh-huh. If it's Seattle or Western Washington history, he's the guy that you want to talk to. So I asked him about this whole Seattle freeze thing. The phrase Seattle freeze doesn't appear in the Seattle Times until 2005, 13 years ago, which is pretty recent. And that rings true with my experience. I remember knowing what the Seattle freeze was 20 or 30 years ago, but not hearing it called the Seattle freeze until the last decade or so. The article Felix is referencing here is a column in the Seattle Times by Julia Sommerfeld. It was published on February 13th, 2005. It's titled, Our Social Disease. Beyond the Smiles, the Seattle Freeze is On. Here's a portion of that column read by a friend of the podcast, Carolyn Osorio. You're talking to a co-worker, someone at a party, fill in the blank. In any other town, this person looks like someone with whom you might be friends. Potential friend asks, So, what are you up to this weekend? Oh, I don't have any plans yet. I just moved to Seattle and don't really know anybody. You try not to look too desperate. Friend-to-be smiles, and for a brief, shining moment, you think to yourself, Finally, someone is going to ask me to do something. Invite me to a party. Happy hour. Brunch with the girls. It'll be just like sex in the city. She'll be Charlotte. You'll be Carrie. 
But instead, you feel a chill coming on. Still smiling, friend not on your life politely excuses herself. Well, have a nice weekend then. Ouch. You've just experienced the infamous Seattle freeze. Welcome to Seattle. Now, please go away. Since this column, the Seattle freeze has gotten its own Wikipedia page and a place in my favorite online authority, the Urban Dictionary. And it seems that about every year, this slew of Seattle freeze-themed articles and blog posts just come forth. Like, how I learned to love the Seattle freeze, or my favorite, how is the Seattle freeze still a thing? But like Felix said, the Seattle freeze has existed long before people were calling it that. It's this tug of war over Seattle between newcomers and the people that were already here, even though they too were newcomers at one point. You know, the, the European settlement here really only goes back to about 1850, right? 1851, 52, when pioneers or Europeans landed here. Of course, natives had been here for thousands of years. Natives probably were the original Seattle Freeze people <laughs> because they didn't want pioneers coming here by the thousands and tens of thousands with their diseases and their, and just taking away their land and everything. That, that's a whole nother conversation. But so Seattle's always been desirable. We've had two very successful World's Fairs here. People came here by the thousands and tens of thousands during World War II. We had Boeing, of course. A lot of those people stayed. We had another big successful World's Fair in 1962 that we literally were on the map and on Life, you know, Life magazine and on television. And it was this huge deal to have what you know, the Space Needle was built for. So not everybody was happy about all this attention. After World War II, the population was growing because it was the baby boom and people had just saved the world from fascism and communism. And they were looking to you know, repopulate the earth and have careers and everything. And Seattle, like the rest of the country, was booming. And um, there'd been this thing called the Golden Potlatch back in the teens and 20s and 30s, which is sort of every big city had some sort of a big carnival. And this was sort of a Native American theme thing that had parades and fireworks and debauchery. It had gone away before World War II. So these people, uh, organization was formed called Greater Seattle Incorporated. And they were the people who were responsible for what became Seafair. The work Greater Seattle was doing caught the eye of sort of certain sort of cynical liberal people who thought, Greater Seattle, we don't, we don't want more people coming here. We like it the way it is. And so a very loosely formed organization was created called Lesser Seattle Unincorporated. And the, the person who's responsible for that is probably a guy named Jerry Holsinger. Seems like he's probably a left-wing guy, fairly liberal. He worked in the pharmaceutical industry, but he also had a radio show on several different radio stations from the 50s up to the early 70s. And one of his shows in the 1950s was called Lesser Seattle. Seattle's always loved to make fun of civic boosters. It's, that's, that's what goes back to the earliest days. We're just making fun of anyone who had any notion of, let's make this city more urban. Let's make this city more cosmopolitan. What a great way to poke fun at people because it's easy, it's, it's easy target. And so the, the name Greater Seattle set itself up to be, called, to be countered by Lesser Seattle. Lesser Seattle in the 1950s, it was sort of an armchair movement with a tongue-in-cheek attitude. Every now and then they'd get a mention in the Seattle Times, usually some humorous quip that the older Seattle wasn't being torn down to make way for a new, larger city. And when you think about it, it sort of mirrors the modern-day debate between NIMBYs and YIMBYs, urban growth and people who like Seattle just the way it is. Seattle has always been desirable. Anyone, my parents moved here in 1959. They were from Europe. Seattle was like paradise in the 1950s. It was not very crowded. Property was really cheap. The scenery has always been gorgeous. I mean, you could see the mountains more clearly then than you can now. And we're surrounded by the beautiful water of Lake Washington, Puget Sound. This was, this was heaven. And so not everyone felt this way, but there's a sort of sense of, okay, raise the drawbridge. I'm in the castle now. Let's raise the drawbridge. Don't let anyone else in here to spoil this. So personally speaking, when I grew up in the suburbs around Puget Sound, it was the Californians moving up here with their fashionable clothes 
and their lattes. Just check out this almost live sketch from the 90s. It was about the very last Northwesterner in Seattle. Journal entry, May 12th. The Californians have taken over. They've brought money, jobs, and beautiful women in thong bathing suits. It's killing me. I've got to go. Out. And actually, Felix says you can find complaints about Californians moving to Seattle going back to the 1960s. But in the 90s, when the music scene blew up, another crowd was drawn to town. And today, a tech boom is attracting yet another wave of newcomers. And in a way, that's the real story behind the Seattle freeze. Seattle's strength, in my mind, has been how it completely reinvents itself every five or ten years or every generation or so. It's totally different. I think about the Seattle I grew up in in the 80s. You could drive downtown and park your car anywhere. You could always find a place to park. There was never lines for anything. It was just a sort of kind of a backwater. This whole notion of Seattle as this paradise really, really blossomed in the 1990s. All these things that had been obvious to anyone who'd lived here started to become easily transmitted to the rest of the world by our culture, by our arts. And we're living with the result of that now in how dense Seattle is, how much the population is growing. And it's almost like there's so many people who are such recent arrivals now, you couldn't really develop a kind of lesser Seattle movement now because it'd be a bunch of hypocrites. And it was hypocritical 50 years ago or 60, 70 years ago too, but just it seems to be even more so now because the ratio of people who are recent arrivals versus, you know, quote unquote, not so recent arrivals. Seattle changes, people come, they get used to it, and it changes again. And before you know it, and I find myself doing it now, too. It's just like I'm actively freezing people, and I've, I've caught myself multiple times doing it. Um, Why do you think that is? What changed? I j- I'm older, I think. I'm not looking um, for friends. It's hard enough to keep the friends you have. I mean, I haven't seen you in a long time, right? Like, yeah. it's hard to just, it's hard to keep track. Yeah, like I said, I still hear people say, like, why? It's been a long, I don't have any friends up here, and I've been here for a while. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And then I go, but I'm real busy. I don't know. <laughs> Well, hey, if you ever want to have a beer sometime. Yeah, well, uh, that's, uh, yeah, well, I'll think we'll pencil you in. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Friday? You're Saturday? Awesome. Uh, Friday, you want to see a show with me, Friday? You got to go up to Everett to see Newsies. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, right. See? Come gather around Seattleites wherever you are. And a stuck on 520, get out of your cars and admit what they're saying in Wallingford bars. Our life style is fading And the most livable city is now a parking lot For the town, it is a changing The food giant's gone, been the doghouse to do And Frederick and Nelson, it's history too Man, we've got lots of telling The Rainbow Squadron is an EP, a tribute album to Star Wars by the band The Hoot Hoots. And you may be familiar with their music if you are a listener to Northwest Nerd because their song Gone Far is actually the theme music for this podcast. And I gotta say, I'm I'm not just saying this because the band was so nice to be interviewed and let us do a feature on them. This album is solid. It's not just cool because it's about Star Wars. The music itself is really, really good. The Hoot Hoots are a band based in Seattle. And they have this music video. It's for a song called Gone Far. You may have heard it. Gone Far is the theme song for Northwest Nerd. 
So in this music video, it's sort of a dance between the band members and Jar Jar Binks. You know, that character that famously ruined all the Star Wars prequel movies for a variety of reasons. Music called Jar Jar Binks. Ah, the point is well seen. Now in the video, the band members are ultimately rejecting Jar Jar. In fact, the video ends with them getting into a big fight with Jar Jar down in Seattle's Belltown neighborhood. It's a bit of a fan commentary on the character. Yes, that was a very cathartic music video to shoot. This is Adam Prairie. He plays guitar and he's the main singer in the band. So you so guys... you can tell like what kind of Star Wars fans we are. We're like there there are some movies that call themselves Star Wars that in my opinion should not be called Star Wars movies. <laughs> the Hoot Hoots have been steadily producing albums and EPs for about 10 years now. But this idea of injecting pop culture, maybe it's Star Wars, maybe it's a video game, into their songs. It's not new, but last summer, they got to talking about something that would take it to a whole other level. They were talking about the upcoming Star Wars film, Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. They were excited about it, got to thinking, and ultimately they decided to make a Star Wars EP, a tribute to Luke and Rey and all the debates that fans have had for decades. And they wanted to do it by the time The Last Jedi was released into theaters. And a week before this film came out, the Hoot Hoots debuted this project. It's an EP called The Rainbow Squadron. They debuted it in the Laser Dome at the Seattle Science Center under a Star Wars-themed laser show. And yeah, it was as cool as it sounds. From the outside, this all looked pretty polished. But in reality, the mission to write and record and edit and practice an entire EP's worth of songs, you know, it's easier said than done, especially when you set a due date that aligns with a film release just a few months away. Some of our enthusiasm for the last two Star Wars movies that have come out have sort of made this something that we want to do. But yeah, from, from a behind-the-scenes level, we, we've sort of been working off and on on a, on a full-length album that hopefully will be done sometime this year. And it's just been really hard to make it happen for various reasons. Like every, Everybody in our band got married this year, and uh, Chris and Holly own a bakery now. So there's just a, a lot of things that have kept us from, from making music. The, the Star Wars EP in particular is one of those things where we could say, you know what, this is just really fun. <laughs> Let's just do something that's really fun. Adam also got a new job booking bands for a venue in Seattle. Nonetheless, they decided to do it. They were going to, rather quickly, make a tribute to Star Wars. And this was the start of what would become the Rainbow Squadron EP, released this month under laser beams. Now, while the idea for the Rainbow Squadron EP came up last summer, if you hear Adam talk about it, about Star Wars, in a way, this has been coming along for a bit longer than that. I feel like Star Wars was the one fictional universe from my from my childhood that like defined like my imagination. I would sit for hours and hours with Legos just building Star Wars stuff. I feel like there's something inherent about the the lived-in quality of the Star Wars universe that really draws people in and wants to feel like they're part of it and want to create a piece of it. And uh, I think I think this EP is kind of our our way of 
uh, you know, taking ownership of a little corner of the Star Wars universe, right? <laughs> For the uninitiated, here's a little bit of a primer on the Hoot Hoots. The band started as a bit of a project between brothers Adam and Chris Prairie. While they were in college, Chris took on the drums, Adam took on the guitar. They started playing music for a psychedelic Shakespeare performance. I was into um, postmodern stuff. I was really into, like music-wise, I, I was really into Neutral Milk Hotel and the Flaming Lips and... Early on when I was getting into music, very much like the psychedelic uh, Beatles era. So lots of lots of really catchy, melodic music that is pretty heavily produced in, in a studio. The brothers, Adam and Chris, they eventually moved out west, where they added a few more band members, Christina Ellis, Ben Lewis, and Chris's wife, Holly. And since then, they've been writing songs, recording albums, and EPs. Now, not every song, but sometimes. Maybe it's Star Wars, maybe it's a video game. It finds its way into the work. We wrote a song on our last album that referenced um, the Shadow of the Colossus from the PlayStation 2, which is a classic, amazing video game. We've kind of take these things that we know and try to make it relevant on a, a larger scale. Maybe even referencing those things and attempting to write a song in such a way where you don't need to understand the reference in order to enjoy it. But if you do, you're like, oh, sweet. And then we identify you as the nerd. Yeah, like the, the front of one of our, our EPs is a, uh, is a riff on one of our favorite video games, Katamari Damacy. And nobody gets that at all. Except we gave it randomly to uh, a person uh, who was helping us out when we were doing a project um, at Dunlumber. We handed it to him and he was like, is this Katamari Damacy? And we're like, yes, finally. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of those influences in our in our music too. A hoot hoot song is generally pretty upbeat, with rock and pop and a lot of fuzzy guitars, all adding up to really just a lot of fun. And while all of that is happening, Adam will slip these little positive messages in here and there. You know, couching a like, environmental message in. Uh, the context of a really like upbeat happy song right and you and then after the fact you might realize like wait have i been indoctrinated <laughs> you know? like i i grew up watching star trek and and obviously watching star wars a lot and i didn't understand that that show was basically a socialist utopia until i was very old <laughs> or much older right and i was like oh man i was indoctrinated as a kid it's brilliant so star wars might not be in every song but over the years it's been there and lingering around the band in one form or another. Star Wars is just is just the I guess the 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 mythos that defines uh, sci-fi for us, right? We I cannot tell you how many times we've had conversations about random Star Wars universe stuff when we're on tour uh, in the car, and uh, and I also cannot tell you how many times we've had discussions about like if only the prequels were like this. <laughs> Rainbow Squadron EP, it's a bit different from what the band has done before. One, they were on a mission to write, record, and practice seven new songs in a relatively short period of time. And Adam admits that that time was weighted a little bit more heavily toward their deadline. And two, the songs are clearly the hoot hoot sound, but 
the lyrics are more obviously about Star Wars. Well, I feel like most most of the the Star Wars elements are coming from the the lyrics that are going on cuz like I I would almost say that this this EP that we've been working on is, you know, sort of a mixture of being inspired by Star Wars, but I feel like some of the the styles of the songs are also inspired by some of the the music that we grew up listening to and and loving. Is there there's one song where we we were basically listening to uh that first Weezer album and we we're like let's make it sound like this. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so Weezer uh, meets Luke. Yeah, it's well it's called Impressive and it's about Luke and Luke uh talking about how impressive he is. <laughs> but so, yeah, it sounds like uh one of those blue album Weezer songs. Big, fuzzy, catchy songs. And the the songs are mostly about the original trilogy, although we also have one that we wrote from uh, Ray's perspective, mostly inspired by somewhat infuriating conversations I've had with um, dudes post-Episode uh, 7 who just couldn't wrap their mind around, like, Ray couldn't possibly learn how to use the Force so quickly. It just doesn't sit with me very well because... When you watch episode four, Luke learns how to use the Force fairly quickly. And by the end of the movie, he's flying around in a spaceship and he's never been in space before. And in, in particular, a lot of those conversations about it, it being impossible for Rey to be as powerful of a Jedi kind of comes from some of this culture of misogyny that we're in right now. In comparison to a lot of the things going on in society, it, Star Wars is pretty trivial, right? But you see those leak into our conversations about even Rey being a Jedi. Like, why can't you believe that she's a Jedi? It's because you're used to seeing a dude be a hero, right? We have another song called Special Edition, which um, our drummer Chris wrote and that stemmed from his disappointment in them removing the Ewok song in the special edition of Return of the Jedi. The chorus of it goes uh, like there is nothing special about this edition. We wrote another song called Bloodthirsty Bears from the perspective of a uh, of a stormtrooper who's, you know, survived the Battle of Endor and is talking to other stormtroopers and he's like trying to explain to them, no guys, you don't you don't get it. Those Ewoks were were like really vicious. Like they, they were like murdering everyone. Whether it's the wisdom of Obi-Wan Kenobi or debating how easy it is to be a Jedi, the Rainbow Squadron is a lot like Star Wars itself. It's a journey. It's little stories, these inside jokes, and some big, fuzzy, catchy songs. I got a T-16.
One of the nicest things that anybody has ever said about a feature that I've done is that a Halloween episode was so scary, they had trouble getting to sleep that night. I know that sounds weird, but that's kind of the point of a scary story, and we like to have fun with Halloween. So that story was a haunting in Madrona, which I present to you here. Ever since I met Rachel Bell, it seems like she's this journalist who wears a lot of hats. She's a feature reporter for Cairo Radio in Seattle. She often does a lot of stories about unique businesses or social issues and food. A lot of food stories. She's into theater, and she's definitely got that radio personality. Actually, I'll just let Rachel explain. Oh, me? I'm just a girl from the Midwest. Just kidding, I'm not. Uh, I'm Rachel Bell. I work at Cairo Radio. I'm a feature reporter on the Ron and Don show in the afternoon, and I have a segment called Ring My Bell, and I'm the host and co-producer of a podcast called Your Last Meal, where I interview celebrities about what they choose for the... La la the la the la the la the. Hey, can you tell I'm in radio? I interview celebrities about what they choose to eat for their last meal, and then I look into the history and culture of the food. And I'm also a freelance food writer, and I have an adorable black cat named Poppy, and it's her month for Halloween because she's spooky. Rachel and I often cross paths, and recently she was talking about taking part in this short film. It was being shot over at the Good Shepherd Center in Seattle's Wallingford neighborhood. The crew started talking about how the building itself was haunted. People had reported ghosts there. And at that point, somebody pulls the director, Dan Gildark, into the conversation. So people that know Dan that were there, the filmmakers, were like, Dan, isn't your house haunted? And he didn't really want to talk about it. He was saying like, nah, I don't really want to get into it. But Rachel did want to get into it. Her reporter charm kicked in, and it was the start of a series she did through October on Seattle ghost stories. Starting with Dan's story. Unlike the fun ghost stories that the film crew was passing around, Dan's was a little different. It took place at a house in Seattle's Madrona neighborhood. And so with a little help from Rachel and her previous reporting on this, here is that story about a haunting in Madrona. I am agnostic when it comes to ghosts. I don't know if I believe in ghosts, but at the same time, I'm weirdly scared of them. You know, I want to preface all this by saying I'm, like, not prone to believe in ghosts or any of this type of stuff. This is Dan Gildark, by the way, the director that Rachel interviewed. Dan is uh, a dad, and he's married, and he has two young kids. And at the time of his haunting, his kids, his two daughters, were three and four years old. A few years back, Dan Gildark and his wife, they bought a house in Madrona. It's a rather particular spot in Seattle. It's mostly residential. It includes a beautiful park on the shore of Lake Washington. It has a lot of high-income residents, boutique shops, some brunch spots. Overall, it's pretty quaint and quiet. It even has this motto, the Peaceable Kingdom. Many of the homes there, they're nearly 100 years old. So when Dan and his family moved into this new house, it really wasn't so much of a surprise when they were informed that someone previously had passed away there. You know, I didn't think anything of it. You know, people die all the time. People die everywhere. And actually, before we moved in, I went over to do a couple things to get the house ready to move into. And while I was there, I used the restroom, and there weren't any curtains up yet, so I closed the door. When I was in there, I heard somebody walking around on the floor outside the door. 
he heard footsteps outside in the hallway. They were so real and it sounded so much like a person walking by that he had thought that somebody had come in the home. It was so obvious that somebody was out there that like I was motionless in the bathroom for like 10 minutes, afraid to come out. So I was so sure that somebody had come in. And then finally I got my nerve up and creaked the door open and looked out and, and nothing was there. I just kind of wrote it off to the house settling or houses in the noise and noises in the house that I wasn't aware of. You know, it's a new house. You know, they make noises sometimes, even though it was not that old, like it shouldn't be settling or anything. So immediately after his family moved into the house, the haunting started. The very first night, my oldest daughter, uh, the four-year-old who was sleeping on the top bunk, she couldn't sleep. She was scared and she'd never been scared in her room before. Um, Her sister was sleeping below her. Um, so much so that I like built like curtains around her bunk bed, nailed curtains up into the ceiling, try to make her feel safer. But she still wasn't sleeping through the night. At the time, his daughters were three and four years old, and they shared a room. They were sleeping in a bunk bed, and his older daughter was on the top bunk. And, you know, of course, they thought it's a new space. She just can't sleep. But for days, she just wouldn't and couldn't sleep. One of the first nights that they were living there, Dan and his wife, their bedroom was in the basement. A couple nights in, I was laying there, and I would feel drops I felt a drop on my face, and I thought it was warm water, and I had no idea where it was coming from. I turned on the light and make sure nothing was leaking from the ceiling, and nothing was there. It just and really freaked me out. That happened like three or four nights, and then one of the days, the uh, first couple of days we had moved in, the shower had come on all by itself. So the shower would turn on without anyone being in the bathroom. He'd have to go shut it off. The lights in the basement would flicker. And he would go and, like, adjust the light bulbs, but uh, the lights would flicker, and they heard um, it sounded like somebody was walking on the carpet next to the bed. So Dan didn't tell anybody, not his wife, not his kids, about these things that he was noticing, about these experiences he was having. So he goes across the street to talk to his neighbor that has lived there for a while. It just sounds like a horror movie. I guess he would always just sit out on the porch and watch the house. So he knew the comings and goings. And asked my neighbor, Greg, like, what exactly happened to the guy who died in our house? And he said, well, they, they didn't tell you. He shot himself in the head in the basement with a shotgun. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it's, uh, it was right before he moved in. He wasn't telling his wife, which this is something that happens on TV and in movies. You know, you go, how are these people not telling each other when they're really freaked? This doesn't happen in real life. Well, it does if you're Dan Gildark. Apparently, this is what happens in real life. The night after he finds out how the previous owner had died, this really just grim, gruesome death, he asks his daughter, like, what is going on? Why can't you sleep? I don't understand. I keep asking my daughter, like, why are you so scared? Like, what's what's going on? Like, what what's going on? And... She looked at me and she said, somebody is pointing a gun at me and Emmy. And then she looked at me and she said, for real. You know, we didn't, I was, I was trying not to show the family that I was seeing anything or scared at all. She had no idea about this story of a guy, you know, with the gun. Um, yeah, so it was just, just bizarre. So around this time, Dan's wife had to go out of town, leaving him alone with the kids in the house. So while she's gone, like, I am sleeping with the girls in my bed downstairs. I had the door locked. I have 911 on speed dial. Like, I don't know what they would do. It's it's totally irrational, like, looking at it. But, like, when you're scared, you don't really know what to do. So my wife gets home, and I'm like, I can't 
we can't stay in this house anymore. Like something is going on. Like I didn't want to tell you. I didn't want to freak you out. Uh, you know, this stuff is going on. And she's like, really? Because I didn't want to freak you out. <laughs> she had heard like the first and second night. And she said she, while we were there trying to go to sleep, she would hear footsteps on the carpet. And she would look over thinking it was the kids and they were never there. And I was like, I don't even know if I can stay in the house another night. You know, we need to do something. So she went to work that day. And, you know, luckily she works in an artistic field. So, you know, some of the women she worked with had uh, recommendations on a shaman. So we called up a shaman. Her name was uh, Phoenix Murphy, local shaman. She's fantastic. I definitely recommend her. And they start doing the ceremony and they start smudging the house. He said that they set up something on the floor, some kind of like um, tapestry and a bunch of items. He didn't go into what they were. And then they used a smudge stick, which if I'm correct, what I remember, because I used to have some hippie friends back in college, is like a bundle of sage that you light the end and you move it around the house to kind of get the bad spirits out. And they were like talking and banging on drums and talking to the spirits and doing the, doing their thing for hours. Him and his wife and his wife's friend were there and they were instructed to be quiet and sit on the couch and to stay in the moment and the present and to not think of the past or the future. When I asked him why, he said he didn't know. And I asked him if they were supposed to be there. And he said, not necessarily, but they chose to be. And so when she's finally done, um, she comes and she tells us, okay, there was, you know, there was a, a man here, you know, and we talked to him and, and had to move on and everything's good. She said, but the thing that was disturbing was that there was a female entity that was haunting him and that there was a bigger, stronger, more evil spirit that was in the house that was haunting him. And Dan actually had the thought, he was wondering if that was why this guy killed himself, if he was being haunted and that drove him to his death. And after that, my daughter slept for the first time, like through through the night, didn't have any more problems. I stopped seeing all the stuff I was seeing. The water stopped coming on, the light stopped flickering, and we kind of kind of got on with our life. I was skeptical, and, and part of me is still a little skeptical of just how much of it was psychological, you know, on my part. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess there could be, in my mind, there, there could be crossover, you know, between between worlds. Here's the thing. When Rachel approached Dan to tell his story, his ghost story, she wanted to actually go to his house. She wanted to see where and what exactly he was talking about. So that I could get, you know, sounds of us walking down the stairs into the basement and make it a radio story that had more sound to it. And he came into the studio instead, and he told me the reason why. Oh, so I didn't want you to come to my house because the, the shaman warned us that to not talk about all these things within the house because it would bring up bad energy and it could let the spirit come back or let, let bad energy back in. So I told my wife last night I was going to come in and talk to you about it today. And she told me her one friend that was there that night ended up going home and she swears like something followed her home and then bad things started happening to her and she ended up getting a shaman and doing the same cleansing at, at her house.
Rachel Bell is a feature reporter for Cairo Radio in Seattle. She did a series of ghost stories in October. You can find Rachel's work, her stories, and her blog at MyNorthwest.com, as well as her podcast, Your Last Meal with Rachel Bell. And that does it for this bonus episode of Northwest Nerd. A bonus episode because it's happening between seasons two and three. We are working right now on putting together the next season of Northwest Nerd. So pay attention to our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We will post when the next season is coming back. In the meantime, you can also check out our Patreon page. Any little bit helps to give us a little bit of a financial boost to do events, get audio equipment, even promotional materials. Everybody loves stickers and buttons. And a very special thank you to our current Patreons that are helping us out right now. And finally, if you know somebody who would like Northwest Nerd, please tell them about it. Take their phones from them when they're not looking. Subscribe them to our podcast. Well, okay, maybe don't go that far, but word of mouth is actually the best way to learn about a podcast. You probably trust a recommendation from a friend as opposed to any other source. So if you like Northwest Nerd and you want to help us keep doing what we're doing, the easiest thing you can do is tell a friend. And until next time, see you next season, nerds. Nerds.